0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to look deeper into 1 Peter, tuning into our current series, Unshakable: Steadfast Hope in an Unpredictable World. Join us as we allow God's Word to shape us and renew our hope with the brilliant truth of the gospel. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. Household slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all reverence, not only for the good and the gentle ones, but also to the cruel. For it brings favor if, because of a consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you do wrong, you are beaten and you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray. But you now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for speaking. Thank you for giving us ears to hear hearts to receive, and Lord, that's how we come to you today, ready and eager and anxious to hear your word. We want to hear your voice this morning. So we pray, Father, that you would uh, give us open hearts, that, that our ears would be ready, that you would cause us to be humble today, and that your spirit would take this word, and that he would bring it to our lives, to the very core of who we are, that we would live to please and glorify you in all things. Do that, Lord, by focusing our attention on Jesus. As we see him today, may our affections be increased. May our love for you grow. May our obedience to your word persist. May faithfulness be pursued today for your glory and for your name's sake. So now speak, Lord, we pray and ask. Together we say amen. Amen. Let's go to God's word. You may be seated. Well, I would ask you this morning, do you have what I'll call an asterisk theology? an asterisk theology. You might ask what that is. What is an asterisk theology? In 1961, Roger Maris chased a hallowed and esteemed record in baseball. If you're not a baseball fan, this one might not connect with you, but but follow along with me here for just a second. He was chasing the historic home run record that Babe Ruth had set in 1927. Babe Ruth in 1927 had hit a monster 60 home runs in one single season. And In 1960, Maris made a run at it, but he fell short. And there was a lot of question, even among many different Yankees, who was going to break Babe Ruth's hollowed record. Maris wasn't the star player on the Yankees. It was actually Mickey Mantle that that year. Mickey Mantle was the star, and and everybody thought Mantle should break the record. But, But Maris was a quiet introverted player. He was content about just going about his business on the field and and being a a faithful ball player day in and day out, but he was a great hitter. and That year in 1961, he hit home run after home run after home run to the point that as the season drew to a close, he had a shot at the record, and yet nobody wanted him to break it. The fans were against him. They didn't like his personality. They They were concerned that this introvert might break this hallowed record of Babe Ruth and Baseball, as we know it, would never be the same. He began to lose some of his hair because of the stress of trying to hit that many home runs in one particular season. The commissioner was against him. The media was against him. And yet, Roger Maris hit 61 home runs in 1961. He broke the record. But next to that stat line, next to that number in the record books... The commissioner of baseball decided he couldn't have that record in and of itself. He put an asterisk next to the number 61, and he declared that because Roger Maris had hit 61 home runs in a season that was much longer, by a little bit, eight games, much longer than what Babe Ruth had hit his 60 home runs in, that there should be an asterisk. His record wasn't as of quality as Ruth's was. Maris got to hit in 162 games, Ruth hit in 154. He was treated unjustly, unfairly even. And for decades, that asterisk stood in the record book against his name, against his record. Now, how do you live, how do you operate in a world that treats you that unjustly? You go to work every day, you do the thing you're supposed to do, you hit the home runs that, that you shouldn't hit, that you do hit, and, and you break a hallowed record. But it's not because you cheated, maybe you had a couple more opportunities, it was still within the bounds of the season itself. How, how do you live in that unjust treatment? Well, that's the question of asterisk theology. How do we as Christians today? It's a question that I'll ask us this morning. How do we as Christians today, following Jesus, live in the world even when we're treated poorly? Even when we're treated unjustly. Even when we have asterisks put against our name for following Jesus and trusting him and believing him. How do we as Christians live in a world when we're looked down upon? We're rejected. Well, I want to take us again to 1 Peter this morning. We've been looking at his letter here in this series called Unshakable, trying to discern what it looks like for us to live in the world and not of the world, to be people of faith in Christ. As, As Peter has declared, we are elect exiles. We are strangers and sojourners in this world. And so how do we live in the world but not of the world? And in chapter 2, Peter has turned his letter into the body of it to say, here's his followers of Jesus Christ, how we are to live this way. He's spoken about how we are to live with regard to our identity. We are God's people We have been rescued by him so that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And as strangers and exiles here, as sojourners, we shouldn't anchor our hopes in this world, in this nation even, but we have a better kingdom, we have a better home that we are looking forward to. And so because of that, we are to submit to every human authority, to the emperor, to honor everyone. We are to live distinctly in this world as people of love. But how do we live when we're not treated justly? How do we operate when it's unfair towards us, when the world is against us, Well, Peter here in verses 18 through 25 leans into one specific situation of how that might look, but unpacks for us a larger view of how to live in the world, not of the world. The situation that he speaks of is there in verse 18. It's the household situation. In my translation in the CSB here, it says household slaves. He speaks to these household servants and slaves. Now, let me just give us a note here of context that slavery in the first century, slavery in the Roman Empire was not slavery like our country knew it some two to 300 years ago. It wasn't ethnic slavery or racial slavery where people were property. People in the Roman Empire would put themselves under the servitude of a master, a homeowner, for instance, in order to keep economically sound. Slavery in the ancient world wasn't ethnic or racial. It was a form of economic security, both for the masters and the slaves. There were given responsibilities, education, room and board, and dignity even as a member of the labor or working class, these household slaves. And in some instances, the slaves were more educated than their own masters. If you've ever watched the series Downton Abbey, one of my favorites, you may remember the household staff that kind of worked, and they existed underneath the house and were around the corner serving the lords. That was similar to what this household slavery in the, Old, uh, or in the New Testament uh, setting and context was like. After a period of time, even the slave could purchase their independence and freedom. Many didn't because of the financial security that was brought by living as household slaves under the home of someone else. So I don't want us to impose our modern experiences onto the Scripture here and then criticize the Bible for it. The Scriptures never advocate for slavery. They never give uh, prominence or or say that we should own other human beings. That's sin. But in the environment and the existence that Peter was speaking to, he was speaking to a, a large population of people that lived as household slaves in the Roman Empire. It's likely even that Peter's direct audience here many of them in that church were household slaves. Consider this. They had been living as Christians in Rome and then had been deported and kicked out of the city of Rome because of their faith in Jesus Christ. As the emperor decreed, they should be expunged from the city. And so they were deported to far away Asia Minor, modern day Turkey and these communities there where they had no security. They had no stability. And so to maintain any kind of a job or stability or security, they may have Sought out to become household slaves so that they would have that. Peter is speaking to their context, to their existence, and saying, I want you to see how you're to live in that. And so he says to them, household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. He, he gives them a way of living. And perhaps we could think of this in terms of our own uh, structures today in our workplaces and our jobs and the marketplace. Consider how you operate and, and live under the authority of your bosses, the, the, uh, the context of your workplace. He says, submit to your masters with all reverence. Do honor is to be given to those who are in authority above you. And, and Peter makes it clear that there's not a context of of when you should and shouldn't do this. He says, not only to the good and gentle, so he says, don't just obey or show reverence or honor or respect to your masters if they're nice to you, if they're gentle to you, if they treat you well, if they affirm you and uplift you, but he says, but also to the cruel. The Greek word there is literally the crooked, those who are unjust, those who treat you poorly. He lays it out for us, even in the way we live and work in our own uh, communities and workplaces today, that we should give reverence and honor to our bosses, to those in authority over us, whether they are good and treat us well and affirm us and encourage us, or whether they are cruel and crooked and horrible towards us. There's a call for the Christian to live in submission, to live with respect It's the distinctiveness of living in the world, but not of the world. But it makes a problem for us. How do we live? I mean, this is really trying. Okay, we can maybe get around the sense of I should show deference and respect and honor, particularly to my boss or to anyone who's in authority over me, if they do a good job and if they treat me well. But if they treat me horribly, if if they're unjust towards me, if they put an asterisk next to my name, Even though I do my work well and faithfully, and they punish me for that, how do I live? How do I live that way? One of the most profound things in Scripture that came to me as I was studying in my uh, Bible college days was a verse in 2 Timothy 3. It stood out to me, and it's been something that the Lord has not allowed it to escape my mind as I've lived in this world. 2 Timothy 3.12. Paul says this to Timothy. He says, in fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You see, there's a different expectation that we as followers of Jesus have to have living in this world today. It's no longer good enough for us just to think that everything should be fine, that there should be peace and harmony and respect, and that we should be treated excellently and well in this world. The scripture is clear that Christians will be persecuted. And I know we have enjoyed, for a long season of time in our country, a significant amount of peace and tranquility as followers of Jesus Christ. But that is abnormal to human history, and the way the scriptures speak about faith in Christ. The way we've received and had the opportunity to live as Christians in this world, in America, has been very, very different than the expectation of the world all around. And so what Paul says to Timothy here is good for us to hear as we think about how Peter instructs us about how to live even under unjust masters. The bottom line is this, that believers in Christ will suffer for doing good. In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. To live well in this world, to honor Christ, to please Him as sojourners and exiles here and now means that we will suffer for doing good. And we have to set our expectations in light of that. We have to come under the reality that we will not be treated fairly, we will not be treated justly. In the workplace, in the public square, in our communities. The mark of a Christian is the asterisk in the sense that the world looks on us and marks and notes and says, you're going to play differently. The rules will be different for you. And so the question remains, how do we live in the light of that? How do we live knowing the world is opposed to us? How do we live knowing that we will suffer for doing good? In verses 19 and the rest of this text, Peter unpacks for us, that's the, the specific situation, but he unpacks for all of us here how to live in the world when we're treated unjustly. He applies it to the household, to the codes there of, of slaves and masters, but he broadens it out for all of us to see how do we live, how must we live, how do we be faithful when we suffer for doing good. There's three ways that Peter speaks to us about this. The first way is this, that we find the grace in our suffering. That we find the grace in our suffering. So he says, household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and the gentle ones, but also to the cruel. For it brings favor if because of a consciousness of God, someone endures grief for, from suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. So he's given us the example. He's shown us, here's the context of it. Regardless of whether your employer, your master is good or bad towards you, good or crooked, how, how do you live? Well, if you're crooked, we endure, we suffer, and we look for the grace in our suffering. What if you take a beating? What if you're threatened with losing your job for the sake of Christ? What if you have that asterisk next to your name and they pass you over for the promotion? What if they mock you because you won't go out partying and carousing with your coworkers even though they all do it? What if you're just frankly mistreated? Notice what Peter says here in verse 19. It brings favor, if the English Standard Version said, it's a gracious thing. God's smile is upon you. It brings favor if someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. Think about that. God's smile is upon you, His his favor is towards you. His blessing is upon you when you continue to do good and you endure grief and you suffer unjustly. That's what Jesus talked about and said in His Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when you are persecuted. When you suffer, the prophets were persecuted. And and Jesus spoke and he said, don't revile those who, who treat you poorly. Don't bring down a curse upon them, but bless those who persecute you. Pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. It brings favor when someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. If you live in this world and you are suffering because of being a follower of Jesus or you're suffering because you're doing what is good and doing what is right in the midst of a workplace that maybe there is corruption and maybe there is crookedness and you're treated unjustly for that. Notice what he says, endure the grief and endure the suffering. God's smile is upon you in that Furthermore, in verse 20, he says, for what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? So, so he lays it out. He says, if you're doing wrong in your workplace, if you're, if you're cutting corners, if you're cheating, if you're lying, if you're stealing from your company, and your boss finds out and he punishes you for that, there's no credit for you in that. You, you get the consequences of that. If, if you sinned and you are found out, You should receive the punishment of that. You should suffer the consequences for that. There's no credit there. That's the way the world operates, and that's the way of justice. But, he says, when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. You might be told to cut corners at work. You might be told to fudge the numbers just a little bit. You might be told to lie. And if you do what is good and you suffer for that, you get the asterisk next to your name and you endure it, brothers and sisters, God's smile is there on you. His favor is towards you. If you're lazy, if you don't do your work well and you lose out, that's just your own dumb fault. But in doing what is right and enduring the suffering from that, there's God's smile. And you might say, well, well, where is God's smile? How do I know this? Notice the phrase in verse 19 here. Because of a consciousness of God. It's a gracious thing when mindful of God. He's directing our attention to the Lord himself. You want to find the grace in that suffering? He's saying, look to the Lord. Look to Christ. Where is his grace? He's with you in that trial. He's with you in that suffering. Consider with me in the book of Daniel the story of the three Jewish young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are told to worship and to bow down to the gold statue of Babylon. And everybody in the country does it. They all bow down and they all worship, except these three young men. And they don't. They do what is good, even when they're told, hey, everybody else is doing it. We're all going along with it. And they said, no, no, we, we'll, we'll worship God. We trust him. And they're pleaded with, the musical play again, bow down and worship, and they don't. They don't fall down on their knees and worship. And so the penalty comes. The asterisk is next to their name. These three guys, they've got to go to the fiery furnace. And they say, okay, there they go. They're placed in the furnace, they tell the king, even if the Lord doesn't deliver us, we still trust him. It was still right to do that. And there in the midst of their fiery affliction, literally, stands one with them. They're mindful of the Lord. They were conscious of his presence with them. It's the idea, as I've said so often, of being and living Coram Deo, before the face of God, seeing his grace, seeing who he is before us at all times. This is how we're called to live in the world, even when we're treated unjustly, to find the grace of God in the midst of our sufferings, to endure, to know that he is present with us. What Peter is telling us is that when we do good and when we suffer and when we endure through that, God is pleased. His favor is on us. And so how do we live? We keep on going. We keep doing good. The asterisk may be put against our name, but we suffer in that, and we endure, and we know God's smile and his pleasure is upon us. His favor is there because we have endured and done what is right. As Christians, we are to do good, to endure, and let God bring justice, to let God make things right, and to let God bless us and show us his grace by his presence with us. Look for the grace. Find the grace in the midst of your suffering. It's how we live in the midst of this world. His presence is his grace and his favor for us. But the second step is there for us in verses 21 to 23. It's to follow the ways of Jesus through suffering. We may be treated poorly, we may have the asterisk against our name, we may suffer, we may take the hit, and we may want to retaliate. But look at the pattern of Jesus. This is what Peter says in verse 21. We might raise the question, if I suffer and I endure for doing good, what about my rights? What about my place? Peter points out here the reality for Christians that being in this world and not of this world means that we operate in a different way from the world. Instead of fighting for our rights or becoming litigious when we're down, when we're treated unjustly, we don't put ourselves first, but we humble ourselves. Now, this is not a case for remaining under significant physical, mental, or emotional abuse. This is a way for us to walk as followers of Jesus when we're just treated poorly, when we're just slandered. Peter says this in verse 21, he says, for you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Why should we endure the suffering? Why should we remain under it when we're called to it? Well, Peter says four things. here says, first, you were called to this. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's to bear the marks of Jesus' suffering. The asterisk by our name is the cross. Jesus went to the cross to suffer for us. So as followers of Jesus, we don't have a different way. We don't have a different route to live out. It's not everything is a golden brick road onto heaven. We follow the one who suffered for us. We were called to follow him. We were called to his suffering. We are called to this. What happened though? What are we called to? Because Christ also suffered for you. Christ suffered and endured for our sakes. He was the object of our crooked and unjust treatment he came and he suffered for us. He, being the king of heaven, being the son of God eternally, came and and took on flesh. That's suffering in and of itself. The eternal God, the incomprehensible, infinite God, becomes finite, takes on human flesh and blood, and dwells among us. I mean, it can be a pretty disastrous thing to live in the 21st century as a human. Imagine living in the first century as a human being. The king of glory humbles himself. He suffered and he endured for us. He came for our sake. This is why we should follow him. And he has left us an example. Now the the word here, example, is really important. I'll come to that in just a moment. But he, he has revealed to us a template of how we are to live our own lives. There's two places in scripture where Jesus says, here's the example that I'm leaving to you. Here in 1 Peter chapter 2 and in John 13, the example that he gives us. The example in John 13 is that Jesus humbles himself, he becomes a servant, and he washes his disciples' feet. He says, I'm leaving you an example that you should follow in this, that you should love one another. Here, the example for us is the example of suffering, of laying down our lives. His example for us reveals for us how we are to walk. He is the pattern we follow, and that we should walk in his steps, just like Jesus, tracing his footprints and our walk through life. This is the example that's illustrated in verses 22 and 23. When Jesus was treated unjustly, when there was an asterisk next to his name because of how he lived, doing good, Peter here quotes Isaiah 53, which was part of what we saw this morning in the kids' video. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return, When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Here's the pattern and the example for us. That Jesus, the servant, the suffering Messiah, when he was treated unjustly, he didn't retaliate in his own way. He didn't sin, he didn't lie, he did what was good. And when he was insulted, when he was mocked, when he was betrayed, he didn't follow through with his own insults. He didn't come out with his own fist raised and his own witty remarks made. He didn't come out name-calling. There was no retaliation or revenge in Christ's eyes when he was mocked. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. There was never a word of Christ from the cross or from his beatings or from his the thorns being thrust upon his head. There was never a word of mockery or revenge or saying God's going to bring you down now. He suffered humbly and quietly. He endured. He didn't threaten. But he entrusted himself to God. Into your hands I commit my spirit. He rested on the fact that the Lord is the judge. And that day of justice will come. he endured. He suffered for our sakes. And this is what Peter says is the example for us of how to live in a world where there's an asterisk next to our name, where we're treated unjustly as Christians when we don't get our way, even though we're doing good. We're called to suffer like Jesus suffered. I said the word example was really important here. It's not just the idea of example as far as something to mimic. The Greek word itself, one scholar says, was used to refer to a pattern of letters of the alphabet over which a child learned to write or would trace. You think about that in school. My, my children do handwriting as part of their education right now. And my son is learning cursive. And so in his cursive book, he has to trace the letters to learn the cursive writing. That's the suggestion here of this word. It suggests the closest of copies. The scholar goes on to say that English words such as example or model or pattern are in fact too weak. For Jesus' suffering is not simply an example or a model or a pattern as if one of many. Jesus' example is the paradigm by which Christians write large the letters of his gospel on their lives. We write large the letters of the good news of Jesus on our lives by following him in suffering. So, friends, are you following the pattern? Are you tracing the hand that bears the nail scarred wounds? That's following the example set for us. And we have to have our minds and our hearts reoriented to what we're called to as Christians. We're not particularly called to luxury and comfort in this world. We're not called to political power and retaining control in the culture wars. We're not called to always have our ways and always have our rights. We're not called to be affirmed and respected and valued and paraded in this world. We're not called to respond with vengeance when we're wronged by the way the world responds towards us. We're called, like Jesus, to suffer. We're called like Jesus to lay down our lives. We're called like Jesus, to do what is right in the world, even when we're beaten for it. We're called to follow Him in all things. So how do we live when we're treated unjustly, when the asterisk is against our name? We must find the grace of His presence with us. We must follow the ways of Jesus, and thirdly, we must focus on the overseer of our souls. Let's focus on the overseer of our soul, verse 24 and 25. I love this. Peter keeps telling us about Jesus. He he keeps pointing us to Jesus and says, look at him. Look long and hard at Jesus so you become like him, so that you're transformed into his glory. Not only does Jesus give an example of how to live, but he stands as one in our place. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. This is what transforms our lives. Jesus bore our sins. We treated him unjustly. We were the ones who were crooked against him. We were the ones who sinned, not him. And he took our sins. He suffered to the extent of not just being a recipient of our anger and our hostility and our violence. He suffered to the extent of becoming sin for us, of of replacing us, of standing as a substitute on our behalf, as a sacrifice for our sins. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. You may remember the curse that was laid up in the Old Testament Cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. Jesus took our curse. He took our penalty. He bore our sins so that, here's the good news for us, Jesus died for us so that, having died to sins, now he's speaking of our lives. United by faith in Christ, we are to consider ourselves dead to sin. Having died to sins, we might live now for righteousness. Here's the reality of the paradigm shift. Christ has died for us to make us new with him so that our way of life is a life of righteousness. It's a life of putting to death our sinful past. It's a life of pleasing him, walking with him. Having died to sins, we might live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. This is the gospel in one verse here. Christ died for our sins so that we might live to him, live to righteousness, and be healed by him. How do we remain faithful? We look at the gospel. We look at the one who has done this for us. Jesus suffered the most unjust death. He suffered and he didn't open his mouth like a sheep led to slaughter and he died so that we might live to righteousness. I might ask and press in here on this word what is this righteousness that he's speaking of? Well, in the context, it's not just doing good things. In the context, righteousness here is dying, even unjustly, for someone else. Jesus is the definition of righteousness. It's humbling ourselves and laying down our rights and taking the hit, taking the beating for the sake of someone else. What would the world look like today if that was our way of life? What would would our community look like if we as followers of Jesus laid down ourselves? that we followed the example of Jesus for the sake of others? What if righteousness was defined in our lives, not by the good things we do necessarily, but by the way we follow Jesus in suffering, being reproached and reviled in this world? What would our world look like if we submitted to authorities, we bared one another's burdens, that we took the blows of those against us, for the sake of others. It's so sad that we're so me centered, me included. I'm so me centered, I don't do this well. But this is where the good news comes home for us. Verse 25, for you were like sheep going astray. Remember Isaiah 53? All you like sheep who've gone astray. Peter's just preaching that passage for us. We're like sheep going astray. We're choosing our own way. We've decided our own direction. We've plotted out our own path. It's a path to death. It's what we deserve. Christ has died for us. He took our curse. We were like sheep going astray, but now, the good news, Christ has come for us. He's brought us back, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseers of your soul. This is where we are to focus on our Savior. Peter describes him as the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. This is Christ, the one who has taken us from our estrangement, from wandering in this world, doing our own thing, loving our own way, dying our own death, rebelling against God, treating everyone unjustly. He's come and he's died for us and brought us back to him. He is our shepherd. So get our eyes on him. He is our overseer. Get our eyes on him. We can't forget who he is. When Peter uses these phrases, shepherd and overseer, he is speaking about one who is Lord and Savior for us, one who cares for us and shepherds our lives and our hearts, and one as overseer who directs and leads and has authority over our lives. When we come to Jesus, we come to one who is in control, even though the world is out of control. We come to one who is secure, and who is secure for us, even when the world is shaken. So we call to focus on him. When we're treated unjustly, when we suffer, when we want to get back, and we want to fight, and we want vindication, the word of God calls us to focus on the shepherd of our souls, focus on the overseer of our souls. Why? Because the scripture tells us For for those who love God and are called according to his purposes, you were called to this. He works all things together for the good of those who love him. All things are for his glory and our ultimate good, even the unjust suffering that we might face, even though the name Christian may not be esteemed in our culture any longer, even though we may have the asterisk against our name saying, they're that guy, that woman. Skip over them. Jump over them. Don't get your focus off of Christ. He's the one who's sovereign and in control for his glory. So friends, do you have a theology of the asterisk? Are you willing to to submit, to be treated unjustly, to suffer, all because Christ has done that for you? I call it a theology of the asterisk. It's not really that. It's the theology of the cross, of seeing what Jesus has done for us and following him in that. We can find his grace and his presence with us. We can follow the ways of Jesus. We must focus on him and fix our eyes on him and pursue him well. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for what you have done for us and suffering on our behalf and dying in our place and leaving us an example, a model that we might walk in your steps even when we're treated poorly and unjustly in this world. Help us, Lord, we ask to be humble, to submit to you our greatest authority, and to follow in your steps. We thank you for what you've done for us. Grow us in Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.